I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Judith. I am so excited to jump in today. Okay, you picked the topic for this episode, so... So you picked the topic for this episode. Want to give us a brief overview? Hell yeah. So I'm really pumped to do this episode because we're talking about disability today. Woo! Yes. <laughs> now, you went to a presentation on this topic recently, right? Yeah, I did. So it was organized by Shelly Ellison. She's a master's student here at IUPUI. All right. And it was led by Amy Shaker, a woman who works with the Indiana Statewide Independent Living Council. So it was an excellent presentation inspired a lot of what I want to talk about in this episode. So let's get it started. Cool. So first, of course, like a lot of our episodes, we got to make a note about the language we're going to use. Right. Of course, there's a lot of debate both within and outside of the disability community as to what language to use. It's kind of like every community there is. Exactly. There's discussion, debate, but basically there's disabled, differently abled, handicapped, uh, even crippled. There are a lot of words out there for ability and disability. So... For note, I am disabled, and I prefer the term disabled. I think each person understands their conditions differently, though. So an important thing to know is that most folks with disabilities prefer what's called person-first language. Okay. Which is the phrasing, folks with disabilities. You put the person first, the condition second. So then they're more than just their... uh, Condition. Yes. But the autistic community, by and large, prefers condition-first language. So that's autistic community, autistic person. Their own reasons surrounding stigmatization and the belief that their condition is a part of them. And that's similar to the deaf community, and that's deaf with a capital D. Okay. So how do you feel about the term differently abled? Personally, I fucking hate it. Sounds kind of funky. It it feels too fragile for me. Right. Like, it's trying to put a cutesy face on my disability, which I don't appreciate. But those who prefer are well within their rights to prefer it. Right. Um, so for this episode, though, we'll be using people-first language with the term disability. Exactly. And there will be some quotes which incorporate the word cripple, which, please, if you're not in the community, don't use that word. It is an in-group term only. Just like if you're not a black person, don't think you can say the N-word just because it's an every rap song. Exactly. That's, that was a slight segue <laughs> for another topic. But, but it's a good analogy because that's similar. Yeah. If you're not black, using the N-word is racist. Yeah. If you're not disabled, using cripple is ableist. Right. So let's jump into the topic. Yes. So, of course, I thought we could start by talking about what disability really is and what disability discrimination looks like. Okay. So, to my understanding, disability refers to any condition which affects a person's daily life and changes how they interact with the world, essentially. Yeah, that's I like that definition. There's a lot of debate about the inclusion of mental health as well, but I would earnestly argue for the inclusion of mental health as a disability. So I, for example, am bipolar type 2. I could paper this room with my uh, diagnoses. But it impacts my daily life, changes how I interact with the world, and changes how people interact with me. Yeah. So that's kind of how a disability works. I feel like they really shouldn't be trying to dis, like not include. I think there's a, what, va- like, a valid side to it. Okay. So there are people who argue that including mental health into disability almost, it doesn't demean disability in any way. Mm-hmm. That's what a lot of people immediately jump to. Right. People believe, and I, I believe this as well, that physical mm-hmm. and mental disability are different. Right. And yeah, that's true. A big problem is that people are like, well, you wouldn't tell a, a paralyzed person to get up and walk. 
well, a lot of people with physical disabilities are minimized and degraded and demeaned in those ways. Right. So when you say, well, a depressed person is like having the flu. No, it's not. Depressed people are not like being disabled. Flu, but I'm pretty sure depressed. <laughs> See, it's not that mental disability needs to be validated by being similar to a physical disability. It's that mental disability, physical disability, they're different but they can still be categorized together. If I was clinically depressed and someone told me that it was like the flu, I'd Ugh. punch him in the dick. Me too. I think I have before. <laughs> can we even leave that in? Yes, we can. <laughs> okay, so kind of connecting back to what you, your earlier statement about the inclusion of mental health as a disability, um, what are some of the historical moments of disability that could help our listeners understand the legacy of disability discrimination here in the U.S.? Well, there is, of course, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Right. I hope a lot of you have heard of that. I hope so, too. <laughs> so, in 1990, the act was passed, creating a framework of legal protections for people with disabilities. A lot of uh, disabled folk call this our uh, Civil Rights Act. Okay. So, it was in 1990... I want to emphasize what Judith just said. It was in 1990. So the thing is, it's a very broad law. It protects people with disabilities from discrimination, and it's gone through a few changes, Mm -hmm. sometimes amending it to include more, sometimes rolling back the protections a little bit. Mm -hmm. But essentially, it provides that legal basis for non-discrimination in things like housing, employment, and public transportation. Just to connect back, um, we're talking about the civil rights movement. Were there not any protections that were put into play no. prior to 1990? No. So okay. the Americans with Disabilities Act was the first time that discrimination against disabilities was completely outlawed. Okay. And it's still missing some things, right. but this was kind of our watershed moment. Okay. It's like the the first brick to put up the dam of hate. Exactly. Ooh, that's a good quote. That was. So, <laughs> on the topic of fair housing. Yeah, I am doing a tunnel of oppression room for 2018 on the topic of fair housing for people with disabilities. And while we're on that little um, honk, honk, go to tunnel <laughs> of oppression moment. Yes. It's in November, so I'll be looking out for those dates. It's um, always a really important thing. There's yeah. going to be a lot of really important rooms. Mm-hmm. My room, for instance, is on... Abortion and women's health care, one of my favorite things. If you heard one of our episodes from last month, yes. the history of abortion. Um, and there are a multitude of different topics. Um, There's going it, to be one about deportation. Mm-hmm. We're doing four rooms this year? Yes. Yes, so we're doing four rooms. So interracial relationships, deportation, abortion, health care, and housing discrimination and disabilities yes and it's a wonderful experience to go through yes i've heard some people go through it multiple times a year which to me because i've been around making these rooms for the last two years i'd be kind of depressed being around the rooms that much (laughs) (laughs) i was because i was in each room all day every day anyway so now let's let's get back Back on topic back on topic guys okay so tell me If there's a law prohibiting discrimination, how is there still an issue? Okay, I know that you know the answer, but thanks for asking. Especially since, you know, all discrimination in this country, even when there's a law, we still get discriminated against. Exactly. Let's pull up all minorities and all people, color, any issue that's not the norm. Quote, unquote, norm, because what is the norm? Exactly. So, basically, so much of fair housing discrimination is subtle. Okay, yes. Basically, so for many people with disabilities, we're not even aware we're being discriminated against because microaggressions, which are like small moments of discrimination for listeners who are unaware, 
These microaggressions happen so often that it's hard to know what's actually illegal and what's just like a culturally embedded antagonism towards folks with disabilities. Right. Okay, so of course, there's the broader issue of accessibility, which comes in many forms, right? Yeah. Um, whether sometimes there are ramps, whether a video is closed captioned, or how you present materials is all done without much consideration for disability, which we've all can account to that when we're in our classrooms. Exactly. Or on YouTube. Yeah. We see that every Those day. Those auto-closed captions? Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. I personally am not a deaf person. Yeah. Um, I am a little bit hard of hearing. I've always been yeah. like that since I was a child. I had small ear canals and normal wax buildup of an individual. And I love to use closed captioning because it just makes it easier to understand. And if you and watch a movie that's quiet, it helps. But auto captioning is like the bane of my existence. I, I like my family hates this because I keep closed captioning on all the TVs. Yeah, same here. And last week, I don't remember what I was watching, but um, let's just say it was like country cheese was what was said or something. Yeah. The closed captioning was like get them peas or something. It was exactly just, like what. If, if I could actually remember the exact words, it'd be worse. Yeah. But, like, that's It's kind like of those uh, funny lip-reading videos yeah. on YouTube. Yeah. It's a ridiculous thing. But this is a good moment to transition to talking about the pioneers of disability rights, and in particular, people like Ed Roberts and, Sue, and Judy Human. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, Ed Roberts, hmm, sounds like a... He's like a little favorite person of yours. He is. Hell yes, he is. So my fascination with him started with his quote, and I'm going to read it to you. Okay. I want to talk about anger. Most psychiatrists and service professionals who work with us tell us that anger is a bad thing, a stage to get over, or something that we need to overcome. But anger is a powerful energy. We don't need to suppress or get over our anger. We need to channel it into making change for the greater good. Okay, so he's one of the first activists for disability rights. That's correct. So, really, he's the father of modern disability rights activism. Take that down, because there will be a test at the end. (laughs) So, people definitely came before him, but I've never known a figurehead of a movement to be less polarizing than Ed Roberts. It seems everyone is really in agreement on the necessity and importance of his work. I think... The only disagreement I've heard from other disabled people about Ed Roberts is whether the word cripple is appropriate. That's it. Okay. So tell me more. So he contracted polio when he was 14, which was literally two years before the Salk vaccine had eradicated it. Um, let's all take a moment to go get your vaccinations. We'll wait. Vaccinate your children. Put us on pause. Go get vaccines. Go vaccinate your kids. And if you're 20 years old and you let your vaccination slip and then you cause some sort of mumps measles, whooping cough, outbreak at IEPY, I will, I will, I hate to do research, but I will research, I will find out who you are, patient zero, and I will, whatever pain you got from the disease that you brought to this campus, I will make you feel 20 times that, and, and I will get my ancestors to come on, rain the hell down on you, okay? And future generations. Yes, yes, no, you know what, I hope and if you're someone like this, I hope, okay, I hope the children of your enemies will prosper. <laughs> okay, so back to Ed back Roberts. To, back to Ed Roberts and his polio. Who, if he had lived two more years without getting polio, could have lived without polio for okay. all of his life. But then we wouldn't have Ed Roberts who he was. Right. So when he was 14 and contracted polio, he became paralyzed from the neck down. 
He lived the rest of his life with assistive devices. Mm -hmm. So that included sleeping in an iron lung, Mm -hmm. using a wheelchair and a breathing tube. And he applied to UC Berkeley for college and he was accepted. But when he showed up, they basically told him to leave. They said, when he arrived, they said, we've tried cripples before. It didn't work. So, obviously. It was his disability that they made him want made them want to kick him out for. He obviously didn't disclose it during the application process because that wasn't a thing yet. But he refused to leave Berkeley. Well, they accepted him. They can't kick you out once they already accept you, do right? But they said, we've tried cripples before. It didn't work. They didn't have accessible housing. They didn't have accessible classrooms. They didn't have ramps. So he refused to leave Berkeley. Okay. And he started the Rolling Quads, one of my favorite things. So it was a group of paralyzed students who would go around on campus And it shocked the other students because it was a positive expression of their disability. Right. So what work did he do? Well, beside his personal life, he became a major advocate for what's called independent living, which is one of the core tenets of disability rights. Independent living is the alternative to institutionalization, essentially. So basically, let's stop putting disabled people, is that the right term? Yeah, that's fine. In prisons, basically? Basically, yeah. So... When folks with disabilities are corralled into institutions like uh, sanatoriums mm-hmm. or uh, what were the ones called like Central State? Mental hospitals. Basically crazy houses, all of that shit. When they're corralled into those, we suffer from this horrible treatment and we lose our independence. Independent living can be a hard sell sometimes though. Journalistic instinct to quote unquote protect people with disabilities is very prevalent. It's kind of reminiscent to the whole uh, women aren't allowed to work for themselves or if they work, they're not allowed to keep their own paycheck. That's what I was going to say. It's like benevolent sexism. Right. But it's benevolent ableism. Yeah. It's an attempt to protect us. It's to make us have an easier life because we can't truly take care of ourselves. But we can. And independent living is, to many uh, disability activists, the first step to attaining full rights for people with disabilities. Right. But I mean, ev- if we're even going to, like, connect it to children... Absolutely. Like, we don't fully know what a child is capable of doing unless we allow them to do yes. what they need to do. And like, there's assuming, so many people come here, and you're like, you did not... Your parents should have kept you at home. Right? And like, there's some that, like, they came at 16, and they're completely fine. Exactly. So a big part of it, like, you can't get diagnosed with certain mental health issues until you're a certain age. So me, for example, I started showing the symptoms of bipolar when I was 15. Mm -hmm. But because I was a child, they wouldn't put that label on me yet. I see two sides of it. On one, it was very paternalistic. It was quite literally my parents saying, we don't want to box her in yet. My mom is still afraid to this day that my diagnoses are going to prevent me from getting jobs. She thinks that someday employers will be able to look at my medical records and say we don't want the crazy. Well, they can't do that. But... Because of the way that the world worked in the past, especially like my mom who worked in unionized male-dominated factories, mm-hmm. word of mouth was a huge thing to her. So she was always so afraid right. of getting any diagnosis put on me. But then there's also that side where it's, what if? Like, what if my mind corrected itself by the time I'd hit 18, 21, 24, these ages that are watershed moments for disability? Right. But that's the other thing. A lot of these uh, disorders don't start showing up until your 20s. So like schizophrenia, schizophrenia, particularly, yeah. is 22 to 25. So people forget that it's not about, like, what are you capable of? It's what are you capable of doing, not who are you capable of being, I guess. Right. I don't know. It's a really interesting conversation to have, though. 
But uh, Ed Roberts and Judy Heumann, they both played really pivotal roles in making independent living an important concept in disability rights. Uh, Judy Heumann was another activist for disability rights, correct? Yeah, so she was... The coolest thing is that during Barack Obama's tenure, she was appointed to a newly created position by him to serve as the Special Advisor for International Disability Rights. Prior to that, she helped Ed Roberts found the World Institute on Disability. She had polio as well, correct? Yep, so she was also a wheelchair user. Let me guess, she lost her job in 2017? So, uh, side note, because I mentioned that she was a wheelchair user, one of my favorite protests in all of history was done by a group of folks who used assistive movement devices like wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. So they went to the Capitol, which, as you may or may not know... Isn't it mostly stairs? It's stairs. There were no ramps whatsoever at this time. This was in 88, leading up to the passage of the ADA. So... It had absolutely no accessible entrances, so they went to those goddamn steps, pulled themselves out of their chairs, out, put down their canes or their walkers, and they crawled up the goddamn steps, chanting things like, vote now and ADA now. So, it's absolutely one of my... That's some aggressive protesting, right? Right? I, made, I hope they were wearing knee pads. I <laughs> loved it. One of my favorite things was that a uh, nine-year-old girl participated. Okay. She had cerebral palsy. Ooh. And she left all of her assistive devices at the bottom of the steps, pulled herself up, and said, I will take two days if that's what it takes. And I was like, oh, God, yes. Like, that's the most badass thing I've ever heard from a nine-year-old girl. Mm, We don't give children enough to do. Exactly. Kids are badass. And the hate that we have towards people with disabilities, towards people of color, towards other minorities is learned, not inherent. Right. But, uh, yeah, so it was, the reason I love it so much is the symbolism. It's just, it's a riddance of shame and stigma associated with disability. And the people who participated were in key, were key in getting the ADA passed. I think people tend to forget about the important disability rights activism. Honestly, I do too. So I've noticed that folks tend to forget how powerful and important these moments really were. By and large, as we've discussed before, I think even in our Culture is Not a Costume episode, Mm disability is really hard to organize just because most disabilities are intensely personal and hard to lump into one category. Right. But we can all band band together under the concept, nothing about us without us. There were a lot of forgotten moments. We don't have a lot of time, but what's another moment you wish people would think of? So, absolutely got to be the Gallaudet University Deaf President Now movement. Okay, what was that? So, students, staff, and faculty of the Deaf University Gallaudet literally shut down the campus when another hearing president was appointed in 1988. There'd never been a Deaf president appointed since its inception in the 1850s. So, even though it was a Deaf university with Deaf faculty, Deaf students, Deaf staff, there'd never been a Deaf president. That's See, it makes no sense. Ridiculous. How yeah. Can someone, how can a president who's supposed to know your needs know your needs? Exactly. If he doesn't share the same identity as you. Exactly. Or at least a similar enough identity. Right. Like, it doesn't have to be that every single person is represented by somebody like them. Right. But it had, it had been since the 1850s. It was not by accident. Yeah. Quite literally, one of the board members that they demanded the resignation of during this protest said something akin to, the deaf people just can't take care of themselves. Yeah. 
Then why the heck do you have a whole university for it? Exactly. Why are they capable of going to university but not managing their own university? So they barricaded, blocked roads. They shut down the campus until they received the resignation of the hearing president. And a deaf man, I. King Jordan, was appointed to the university's presidency. In the interest of time, we've got to move on. But you can find more info about these individuals and these movements, um, the Capitol Crawl and the... How do you pronounce the name? It's Gallaudet. Gallaudet Deaf President Now Movement, plus info about the activists we've discussed in the recommended reading link. Yes. So let's talk about today. Okay. So there are a lot of issues that still face disabled folk. Um, Fair housing is one we've touched on, but there's also the broader issue of accessibility. Yeah, of course. So accessibility can mean a lot of things. It can mean the use of Braille to leave in a spot in circular chairs, so that if someone who uses a wheelchair wants to join, they can do so easily. Mm-hmm. But we forget about these basic techniques, because frankly, we're never trained on these issues. It's not something that comes up, even in social justice work a lot of the time. Yeah. And then there's also just general ableism. Yeah, of course. To me, the most blatant form of ableism is just how embedded it is into our language. I think most people who know me know that I fight really hard against language where you insult people based on their intelligence, so dumb, stupid, idiot... Or saying crazy, psycho, something like that. Or saying lame. And I can't stand it when social justice advocates insist on the terms colorblind or raceblind or genderblind. Those are all forms of disability discrimination. Also, those things don't exist. But exactly. Well, <laughs> some people in theater, for example, talk about raceblind and colorblind casting. That's still an ableist term. Like, it, Yeah. Uh, These microaggressions just basically follow us everywhere because they're so subtle that really only disabled folk notice and we don't even notice unless we're consciously aware of it. Do you have a suggestion maybe? I think that the first step is really just asking people to be aware of the language they're using. Ask yourself where did that term come from? And one of the things I always hear is people who are like, well, what else can I insult people with? Why the fuck you got to insult them in the first place? Because some people just need to be insulted, man. <laughs> insult you them specifically. that need to be insulted. One of, one of my favorite things, insult them with specificity because it'll hurt a lot worse. If we say Trump is crazy, you're not doing anything but marginalizing crazy people because we're all like Trump all of a sudden. Trump is... Or white male shooters. Orange is not the new black, so please stop <laughs> with that ugly ass tan. That's a good one. You old white man cheeto. Right? Think of um, like white male shooters. They're all just called crazy. Ooh, I got one. That's just a form of racism. They got mama problems. Insult with specificity. So Trump has shitty policy and doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. He needs to that hits a lot harder. His head. <laughs> Shut up. Have you seen that Simpsons clip? Oh my god. Where his toupee yeah. is really a dog. Yes. That's about all the time we have today. But again, lots of good info is linked in our recommended reading section. Obviously. And of course, I probably went overboard on recommending books, but I'm a big <laughs> fan of them. Disability studies. I swear. <laughs> But uh, make sure to keep up with us on social media where we'll also promote any info we receive about the new Disability Student Union on campus. We look forward to hearing from you. That's it for today. Bye.